Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hey, welcome to the very latest episode of the Andy J Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to check us out. I hope you are a regular listener, but if this is your first show, we have one heck of a conversation for you. It's with Professor Green, also known, of course, as Stephen Manderson. Now, as Professor Green, he is a multi-platinum selling artist, a rapper, a TV presenter, a big style personality, a man who you watch on your screens and hear in your headphones. As Stephen, he's a new dad and he's a really lovely bloke. Now, I do need to flag up, there are some issues in this conversation that may cause you some concern. And Stephen is very, very open about the life that he has led. He has had a challenging and tough time of it from several brushes with death in his own life to also the fact that his father committed suicide so I'm flagging that now because they of course do come up in this conversation and Stephen speaks very openly and very candidly about all of these things as well as plenty of other fascinating stories he is a astonishing guy and he was such such an open and brilliant guest. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. He's a very thoughtful man. He's a big thinker, super bright. And of course, because of the life he's lived and the experiences he's had, he's so informed. I was really impressed. I admire Stephen hugely. I liked him enormously. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'll stop waffling. I just wanted to say thank you and enjoy. The Andy J Podcast. We have a very special guest for the whole show today. He's a multi-platinum selling artist, rapper, TV presenter, and he's also a new dad. I am thrilled to welcome the man they call Stephen Manderson, a.k.a. Professor Green. How are you doing, Steve? You all right? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. That was a wonderful intro. Thank you. Well, I wanted to start off with the new dad thing because I know what you're going through right now and it is a whirlwind of joy, delight, exhaustion, fascination. Delirium. Del- <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the most fulfilling thing I've, I've ever, yeah, I've ever encountered in my life. Really? Yes, it is. And it's the only thing that makes you this tired and this happy for this long. Obviously, there are other things that make you tired and happy. Um, but I don't think there's anything that makes you as, as consistently tired, but as consistently, overwhelmingly happy. So I'm going to share something with you straight away, Stephen. Is it OK? Yeah. By the way, you know, the world knows you as Professor Green. Is it all right to call you Stephen? Because it feels strange calling you Professor Green for an interview. Yeah, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit weird. I heard a rumour of Meatloaf insisting on being called Meat, which I thought was quite funny. But <laughs> I, it, I, it would be a bit weird to be called Professor Green every time we spoke. I, I always introduce myself as Stephen and people go, no, you're Professor Green. I'm like, no, I'm Stephen. Yeah. So Stephen, <laughs> it's, but I hate Steve. 
So as long as you don't call me Steve, oh, I did right. do that, didn't I? I did say Steve, actually, I'm straight joking. off I'm straight the bat. I'm not really joking. I'm only joking. <laughs> it's just because my name spells a PH, so you can call me Steph, but not Steve. I gotcha. I gotcha. That's the dyslexic in me, not getting that. Or Steve, as my mates from Liverpool call me. <laughs> I'll go with Steve, yeah, Steve. and then we're, we're, we're ploughing the right furrow. Well, Stephen, here's the thing. Your little lad, he was born on the 15th of March, right? Yeah. So 10 days earlier, my little lad was born. Amazing. And what was it, the same year? Yeah, as in this year. Oh, wow. So you're, Jesus, you're just like a, yeah, you're, you're, you're just over a week ahead of me. Exactly. I'm 10 days ahead of you, although two kids prior as well. He's my third son. Ah, so a little bit more experienced and well-versed. Well, that's why I'm intrigued, because I know what you're going through, but also I'm now experiencing for the third time as a, like as an old man now. You're 37, right? So I'm 43. Yeah, I'm 37. That, that's relatively old. What's Okay, so what's the age difference between your kids? So my eldest has just turned eight, literally just turned eight. Then my middle my middle son is three. And then obviously we've got the baby who's uh, who's just, you know, brilliant. <laughs> Amazing. So you get so, so uh, are a terrible twos a thing. So we have we haven't found terrible twos, actually, but we have experienced three nature. Right. Okay. Because I was going to say it was quite smart to get the terrible twos out of the way before you had the third part, the third child. But if you're if you're experiencing a three nature, which is a new term to me, but one I'm going to adopt, um, <laughs> should I need it, uh, then that's probably yeah, that must be quite challenging. I mean, but it's all it's all, but it's the best challenge, isn't it? It's oh, yeah. like it's it's the one challenge with real purpose. Like we all set ourselves goals career wise and and life wise, but then you have a kid and you're like, oh, that's what purpose is. Yes. I'm so um, pleased to hear you say that because, I mean, I've heard you chat for, for so many years about all sorts of different subjects and, and you've shared so much of your life. But And, and I want to talk about everything that's, that's happened to you and that your plans are, etc. But but my hunch and guess as a, as a dad myself is that almost everything has been reset because of this amazing new journey. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, I mean, it has completely. You kind of, you still realize that, I mean, you think maybe everything's going to change or you're going to become a completely different person. And there has been changes in me. I think a lot of them occurred prior because I did a lot of work on myself before having a child because I didn't want my child to ever, or to have a child. I didn't know who my child was going to be, obviously. Um, but I didn't want to have a child without doing some work on myself first because I was born into a lot of ancestral rubbish. I was born into four generations in one household. Um, and no one really had the, I love them all, but no one really had the self-awareness to have done any work. And I don't think it was as prominent a part of culture then to perhaps see a therapist or to, you know, to take a long, hard look at oneself or, or to actually have hard conversations, you know, and to, to deal with things out in the open. Everything was, was just suppressed or swept under the carpet. Um, so I sort of absorbed all of that as a kid and then had to spend my adult life unlearning a lot of behaviours. So I did most of that, I think, I hope, before having my child, which made it a very different process. So you sort of, you felt like you were ready, as it were? As ready as one can be. Um, he showed up early, obviously, because he's like me. My, I live by the same. The only way to be on time is to be early, and, and he was that. Um, we still had decorators in the house, so you can imagine we've got two big dogs, <laughs> and they can't socialise. And then we had, and it wasn't just like, you know, one ceiling and one room being plastered. It was a whole house being redecorated. Oh, um, yeah, you know, like, oh, yeah, let's get this done before before the baby arrives. So we haven't got to get it done when he's here. And then he shows up two weeks early and we've still got builders in. And 
it was um i mean we've only just literally started to move back into our own house but we've you know it's been fine we've had a pretty welcome distraction Yes, you have. Yes, you have. And have you noticed even the most sort of basic of things? Like I found this, especially with the first, and people say, oh, it changes completely for the second and third. Actually, it doesn't. The, the joy, the elation, the fascination, the intrigue, the, the whole new learning about yourself, it never, that never changes. It's just it's a slightly different variant. But certainly with the first, for example, I discovered that I had become a totally different sort of human being. I, I'll give you an example, see if this rings true with you. Even the most basic advert had me basically in tears, like an advert with a slightly sentimental topic to it. I'd be like, oh, so well. You know, my emotions were heightened to the next level. Have you heard right, of that? Yes, but there's, I've got two theories. I think one is that you do genuinely, sorry, I'm just trying to get my dog back in without them killing the cat. My dogs, um, I think there is, yeah, I've got two, I think two theories around that. And I think one is that you do genuinely become, your emotions are obviously more heightened especially with all the oxytocin running through the system. Um, but then there's also the sleep deprivation. And, you know, my recent endeavours into starting the business, uh, a gulp, and just kind of going down every rabbit hole health-wise you can imagine, um, led me to reading a lot about sleep. And the first part of um, your faculties that you lose uh, when you suffer sleep deprivation is the ability to respond rationally to pretty much anything so you end up going from highs like high high highs to the lowest of lows really quickly mm. um and i think that probably plays a part into you know the reason i've cried at i don't i'm trying to think of something now i want to give you like i want to give you something i've actually cried over um i mean it's easy to say i've cried over the news but that's not that hard at the moment is it that's true that's true. I think mine was like a washing machine advert or something. I was like, what am I doing? What's, what's going on? It's so great. They've now got clean clothes. You know, it was like, that was that kind of thing. You know, yeah, was... definitely blame it on the sleep deprivation. I think for me, there's been a lot of like, there's been a lot of happy tears, you know, just in, in that he hasn't been born into the same situation that I was. And don't get me wrong, man, like my childhood was amazing. I had so, I was surrounded by so much love, you know, the, the, the same thing that, that had its negatives had so many positives, four generations, you know. My mum, who did leave when I was a year old, my dad wasn't around that much. Um, then my grandmother and then my great-grandmother, you know, it was Unreal. She, my great grandmother lived through two world wars, and uh, sadly, she passed when I was thirteen, which is when I was just starting to ask the right questions. You know, and um, when she explained to me what Hackney looked like pre Second World War, and you know why there were so many council estates and stuff like that, um, and what life was like, um, and you know, she took a lot of of what I would have liked to have known to the, to the grave with her, bless her. But um, I had her for thirteen years, and all the time. I was absent from school, which was quite a lot of my childhood. Um, she was there. So I never missed out on, you know, I think when people are brought up in single parent homes, they quite often miss out on that because, you know, they don't always come home to someone at home because they're at work because they have to provide. Um, and they miss out on that nurture. And I didn't miss out on that. And I definitely got the softest side of my great grandmother because, you know, she'd already raised her children and then, seen three grandchildren grow up so i got the softest soft you know my nan always said i had her wrapped around my little finger and i think maybe i did um but she's her and my grandmother you know they're, they're huge contributions to the good parts that are in me you know i, I saw my um excuse me i saw my, my nan working three jobs a day so you know with that kind of example of work ethic 
made me want to work hard. Um, seeing how little she got for how hard she worked definitely made me want to to work smarter as well because I think there's, you know, the idea that hard work equals a good outcome is not necessarily the case. There's a lot of people who work extremely hard for nowhere near their value. Right. No, that's that's completely valid. I mean, I mean, let's let's sort of dig a little and, and flesh out what you've talked about, because, of course, for the listener that isn't aware of your journey and your story, you know, you, you've, you've touched on a few of the a few of the sort of early foundation parts. Your, your parents were very young when they had you. You know, you, it's easy to say, well, my mum was she left after a year, but she was very young. I'm not trying to make excuses, but I'm, I'm just. No, no, no. Listen, it's not even that's not even an excuse. That's a reason. She was 16. Mm. You know, she was 16 and her and my dad was split up as well. My dad was 18. So. I mean, look, I'm, I'm nearly, I'm not far off 38. So the idea of having, you know, a child at, at less than half my age is is incomprehensible. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and you've also mentioned Hackney. You were you were gr- brought up on a council estate. You know, but as you say, that the house that you were brought up in, the flat you were brought up in, basement flat, it was, it was full of love, wasn't it? It was a full, full. It was house. also full of chaos. It was also for I was loved. Um, I don't know about everyone else. There was, um, you know, because they were adults and they had quite fraught relationships um, based around conflict, which they never discussed. Okay. Ever. And I think that was the, you know, that stiff British upper lip. And that had a purpose. You know, I do think there's situations where even now you have to kind of just, you know, keep quiet, puff your chest up and, and get through things to get through them. But then what I think we, you know, it's important to highlight is the necessity to go back to those things and to understand them and not let them dictate your behaviours. Yeah. Yes, you're a, you're a very deep thinker, aren't you? You've um, you've obviously put a lot of time into analysing life, humans, and, and how we connect. Too much time. Um, overthinking was a part of my problem. You know, something that comes from therapy was up. Generally, you know, I don't worry about things when they happen. In the moment of crisis, I'm cool and calm. I worry about things uh, pre them happening or pre them perhaps never happening, which is more often the case, which is a complete waste of time because, you know, worrying about the corners you can't see around is pointless. You're never going to be able to see around corners. Um, and, you know, worrying about something after it's happened is also pointless. It stops you from being present and from, from moving on. So learning how to sever ties is quite important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's something that you've had to deal with and live with. From from the start, really. I mean, you know, we'll talk about if it's all right with you. you your, your great mother, great grandmother, you've touched on first what an influence she was on you. What a remarkable and kind, lovely woman she was. You had her till you were thirteen, and she recognised early on, as far as I understand it, Stephen. Correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, and apologies if I'm being dumb. But from what I can glean, she recognised what a smart young man you were. What a special young man. She taught you to read. She got you interested in things that weren't just your immediate surroundings. Is, is that right? Yeah, I was quite ahead of my years when I went to school, thanks to my great-grandmother. I used to, like, she used to sleep in our living room on a chair that sort of folded into a bed. Um, they do fancy ones now. This one was by no means fancy um, because there were six of us in a three-bedroom flat and it wasn't quite, you know, Charlie in a chocolate factory, you know, but it was quite, um, it was, yeah, there wasn't that much space. Um, and so I'd run out of, uh, when I was, I used to share a room with my nan and I'd run out of there every morning, which was literally through one door into the living room where my great grandmother was and jump under her blue blanket and disturb her. And this is, and I always tell this story the same way, but it will never change because it was as it was. Um, 
you know when the BBC had that weird holding sign with the little girl holding the, the puppet with like the <laughs> yes. which in hindsight is really scary like <laughs> yeah to be fair thinking about I it don't now, think it's creepy. Like, yeah, yeah I don't I don't think of it fondly um and so she would just read to me um all the time uh, and stuff that I didn't understand obviously because at the time when she started reading to me I didn't understand much um, and she would read, but she would you know, continuously read things to me that were ahead of where I, I would have been otherwise. And then I began to read back to her, you know, word for word, paragraph for paragraph, page for page. And then that kind of, it, it meant that I sought validation in the right places. Um, I was quite an anxious child. That said, I was, you know, I was quite quiet as well. But that said, if I ever had something to say, I would, I would say it. So maybe in hindsight, less, less quiet and more considered. Uh, giving myself a bit more credit now than I perhaps did before. Um, but she also taught me numeracy um, and she just inspired my mind and, and my inquisitiveness, really. Um, I was quite curious, so I was eager to learn. And because I guess I saw a bit of her in each of the teachers that I had, I wanted to, you know, which is, you know, there's bad sides of wanting to be, you know, wanting to please people because you become a people pleaser. You end up saying yes to everyone that wants something and not ever, you know, being yourself, you're just whoever someone needs you to be. That said, it helped me early on, but I had a problem with absence, and that's kind of, you know, that, that that's the step beyond anxiety. Anxiety and, and absence go hand in hand. You know, as we at 11, I got the chance to sit the exam for St. Paul's, which, you know, a kid from, from Hackney who's already been to three different primary schools, that doesn't happen much. Um, but I just said to my nan, I don't want to do it. It's not for me. I felt like at 11, I already knew my place in the world. And to be honest, I don't think I would have done that well there. I mean, I ended up in a pupil referral unit by 13 anyway. Um, so education wasn't something, yeah, and bearing in mind education wasn't something, well, it wasn't something that was in my family. At that point, no one had ever been to university. Uh, since then, my, my young cousin Charlie has, and he got a first and a master's. So, you know, we are slowly changing the course of our, of our family bit by bit um but yeah it was uh it was her that definitely inspired me to use this uh this whatever i have in between my two ears do you uh, i use the term lightly Stephen, because i you know it's it's not a good emotion to to kind of have really but but do you regret at all any of the decisions you made around around your education when you were almost too young to know what you were deciding if, if that makes sense mm. Yeah, no, I think I was allowed to make decisions uh, that I was making when I was too young to make them, to be honest. Mm. Um, but I can't, I can't regret them. You know, I regret, I think regret and guilt, you know, beyond apologizing for whatever you may have done and being sincere in that, um, you know, I don't think they, they're useful. Uh, yeah, regret and guilt don't really allow for you to, you know, again, you're still attached to something, you know, after the fact of it's happened, you can't do anything beyond what you've done if you've, if you've done everything within your power to fix what you've done wrong. Um, so I don't think, I don't think it's healthy to live with, you know, or, or, or unless the only option is to learn to live with regret, you know, but yeah. to have them constants and to kind of have them ruminating constantly is, is not healthy. Yes, I think that's it's, something big wrong. It's, it's very easy, isn't it, to, to sit back and judge 
your past and, and moreover it's even easier for for other people to sit back and judge someone else's past because they weren't living it they weren't experiencing it and they have no idea what the reality was day to day you know if you look at the at the nutshell of what happened you had the smarts to go to this fancy school you know you had the the, the you know the kind of foundation thanks to your great grand you, you know you clearly had the the aptitude you chose not to school didn't work out for you and you know, from the basic level, people will be going, oh, you should have tried harder at school. It's not like that, though, is it? That's not what we're dealing with. And, and you sort of, you've talked about... No, it. but people are, people are quick to judge. And I always think people that judge without having been at least present, um, I think it says a hell of a lot more about their character than the person that they're, they're perhaps judging. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's all too easy to pass judgment. And we, we kind of live in a culture where everyone passes judgment on everyone. And on every part of every person, you know, whether it's aesthetics or, you know, life choices or, and they forget, you know, like when people look at my life and they ask me about, you know, traumas and things that happened because there were some quite specific moments that always get brought up when I got stabbed, um, when my dad took his own life. They talk about those things as being, or, or, or they expect those to have been the larger traumas in my life. But actually, I think the things that hurt me more were cumulative and occurred over time. You know, growing up where I did, how I did, um, I think that that was probably that probably played more into to what I had to remedy later on in life than any one thing. Yes, which is a very powerful thing to say, and and something that I think people will be quite surprised to hear because, of course, as you, you've just mentioned, two major moments which we, we will obviously talk about, perhaps perhaps not in the way that you've spoken about them historically, because as you say, it's a it's a it's a it's a well trod path, and you've already sort of addressed them, but. You know, to be able to say, well, actually, yes, you know, I was stabbed and my, my, my father killed himself and so on. But that wasn't the biggest challenge growing up. That's that's a that's a pretty landmark thing to hear, Stephen. And, and incidentally, as well, I hope you don't think I'm judging you. I'm asking questions. I'm certainly not judging. Um, I just no, want, of course not. I just sort of want to make that point. Um, thank you. for Thank you for highlighting that. Not many people do. But yeah, I, I kind of didn't expect that of you. Oh well, it's, it's, it's just, just. I know we've only been speaking for a short time, but I get a pretty good vibe from you. Oh well, thank you. It's um, it's 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 entirely mutual, and it's uh, it's a real pleasure to have this chat, and, and I, I really appreciate your honesty. Um, can we can we talk a little bit about? And again, this is not making assumptions or or or, or anything like that, but it's just something on your timeline. You know, we, we sort of, because I think it's important to understand you as a person, everything that's going through your head as, as a young man, you know, at this stage, after 13, you'd lost this wonderful rock, this wonderful sounding lady, your, your great grandmother, you know, the, the school choices, they are what they are. You did find yourself, and, you know, I'll, I'll sort of tread lightly here, but you did find yourself, you know, there was a drug situation and, and you even started dealing, I believe. Is, is that right? I'm asking questions, not, not sort of making statements. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I don't make statements ever. That's not what we do where I'm from. Um, yes, that is that is what happened. Um, and it was, you know, I began selling weed at quite a young age. Um, it was a commodity, to be honest. And it's kind of funny when you look at, you know, the legislation that, like being passed in certain countries now and the, the, the benefits of that. Um, it always seemed like a, a harmless crime to me for the most part. Um, but I did that for, for, for quite a long time. I never sold uh, any harder drugs, if, you know, if I can be open. Mm. You know, I never sold crack or smack because I don't believe in dealing with people in the most desperate situations they've ever been in in their lives on a day-to-day basis. I think that brings, you know, they, they call they call brown bad luck for a reason, you know? Right, right. Um, 
And yeah, so yeah, I did. It was it was funny. My nan never knew. She never used to know what the smell was. And one day she went to her mate uh, Linda, who used to live by Victoria Park, and Linda's partner or Lynn, Lynn or Linda, I can't remember. Um, and her partner Dave was in the back garden. And he was smoking, and my name recognised the smell. And she went, "How's that smell?" And she went, "Oh, Dave's in the back garden, and smoking that wacky backy." And my name come home and hit the roof, <laughs> hit the roof. I was like, "Oh, limit here we go." Um, but I moved out quite, you know. I got, uh, I kind of facilitated a decision for my nan to move out. Hackney went. I was starting to get further into that, and I moved out of my nan's house shortly after. And you know, it was something I said I would never do, and I never did do. I never took police to her door. Right, right, yes. And it sounds like you you kind of understood that. Sorry, my my phone's apologies there. It sounds like you understood responsibility from a very early age. You were very much like, this is on me. I own this. I will I will keep this to me. Yeah, definitely, because no one was going to, you know, if anyone was going to get in trouble for it, it was going to be me that was going to have to deal with the repercussions, wasn't it? Yeah. Or it should have been. But but people could, a lot of people would have hidden. A lot of people would have, especially at such a young age, would have just gone, oh, not my problem. No, 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 no. That wasn't me. You know, it's the old Shaggy song, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that was around a completely different circumstance, though. Well, true. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just just trying to use a lyric. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> trying to use a lyric because it helps. Uh, so, again, I'm trying to get into your mind, you know, the sort of 16, 18, 19-year-old you who's... Me, then. All right, well, let me explain to you how it happened. So I used to... I was quite lucky. I think what kept me out of a lot of trouble, bearing in mind that a lot of my friends went... You know, they were they were youth offenders um, and, you know, were institutionalised from a, a very young age. And I think what kept me out of that a little bit was I used to skate. So I knew people from all over London and outside of and travelled with it a little bit because I was quite good at it um, from quite a young age. And that was, you know, being part of that subculture was amazing because it kept me out of what was going on back in Hackney, albeit when I went to skate, I had to carry my baggy jeans and my skates in a bag to Clapton train station, get on a train and then get changed into my baggy jeans when I was in um, when I got to Liverpool Street, I, I used to always use the McDonald's toilet to change in because I couldn't, I didn't really want to be seen as a skater in Hackney because then I'd have been deemed a grunger and that would have come with certain, you know, difficulties. Okay. Um, not everything was as accepted, you know. Hackney wasn't, people think of Hackney now as Broadway Market and, you know, everyone wants to live in Hackney now, you know, especially people who have grown up in Wiltshire. But um, it, it's, you know, Hackney was a very different place when I was growing up. You couldn't pay people to live there. Now people can't afford to live there. But so what happened was amongst my group of friends who were skaters, because of the people that I knew, I could I had access to, to weed. So I would always get weed for them. And then I was like, well, if I'm getting, you know, if, they, if I'm buying this for this person and this for that person, why that you know? Why don't I buy a little bit more because it costs the same price, and then I can get my weed for free? You know, it was uh, it was I guess the brain my great grandmother had given me kicking in, and my skill with numbers. It was quite um, you know, it was uh, quite easy mathematics. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of how it began. Um, and then you know, you fast forward, and I'm all of a sudden I'm picking up ten kilos for thirty grand. It's a it's a different thing, isn't it? Um, but that was that was the that was that was the entry, and and that was a progression. Wow! And you sort of you used the phrase, you know, you're getting your weed for free, which makes me assume that you were, you know, you enjoyed a bit of a smoke yourself, presumably. At I, that did, time. I did, I did, I did used to, yeah. Now I'd be scared. 
Right. I still love the spell. I still love the spell of it. Um, but I, I, yeah, it's um, it, it doesn't treat me how it used to. How um, I think, Stephen? Just sorry, no, no. Just, just listening to to this kind of journey and this this, I mean, quite frankly, incredible young man. You know, with with all this thought that you would put into everything you know from from being as simple as not wanting to be seen in skating gear you know around your neighborhood to you know to all the different levels at which your brain was kind of was was thinking and of course you must have been wondering about your your parents and your relationship with your mum and dad and so on as, as as a young lad how much were you aware whilst you were bringing up that this perhaps wasn't a standard childhood it wasn't a traditional route as it were um, a little bit more once I started to, to meet people from different backgrounds. And that was the good thing about Hackney when I was growing up is that like, people always go, oh, my God, that must have been terrible. But you don't have perspective. You know, you're not growing up in, you know, a nice part of the Cotswolds until you're 13 and dropped into into a situation, you know, like all of a sudden from, you know, a middle to upper class family that loses all of their money that then ends up in Hackney and, you know, all of a sudden have to deal with all the challenges that come with growing up in a low socioeconomic background. It doesn't, that's not how it is. So you don't see both sides of the coin. But then once I started to meet people from, I mean, I bet Sinead O'Connor's son through skating, you know, going to, you know, their place in Notting Hill and seeing how they lived um, and just seeing the differences and understanding that. I used to think, um, you know, there were people who were quite expressive um, sort of mid to late teens and felt freer than I ever did to be who I was. And that was, I guess, because I, I you know, when you talk to people from, from wealthier backgrounds, they're not so attached to where they came from. It, it, it's more often their school, whereas my identity was hackney. And I think that's what happens with a lot of young people now. They feel a lack of purpose, so their identity becomes where they're from. Um, I mean, London's, you know, a big and a small place at the same time. Um, you know, it would be better for your identity to be a Londoner, wouldn't it? But I think for some growing up now, you know, you look at people arguing over postcodes, and it's even worse than postcodes now. It's, you know, it can be, it can be a, a neighbouring estate. Um, and people's worlds become very small. I think because I used to skate and I saw a little bit more of the world than most of my friends did, and I was introduced to people from different walks of life and became comfortable with them. I wasn't, you know, everyone kind of has these, you know, we all display stereotypes of, you know, people who talk one way who are from one background and those of us who are more common, such as myself. Um, and it's always the kind of, you know, the, the sensationalized or, or stereotype, isn't it? or the, the, the kind of hyper-reality of, um, you know, the people we discuss. And that generally comes from fear because we don't know them and we don't feel comfortable because we think we're going to be judged. We pass judgment because we're scared of being judged. Um, and I, I didn't really have that. It's weird, you know. My nan wasn't and isn't perhaps the most comfortable person in certain spaces, but always taught me that, you know, your class isn't dictated by what you have in your pocket or your bank. It's by how you treat people. So I was just... You know, I went about wherever I, I went with the attitude that if I'm polite to everyone, then I'm fine wherever I am. I don't need to be uncomfortable. And yes. that helped me. Um, yes. And it still helps me, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But were you, uh, it's a strange one, this, but I'm going to ask it. Were, did you find that whilst you weren't necessarily trying to judge others, you know, when you were, you were following your nan's advice, were you maybe overly judging yourself at the time? Um, perhaps. 
I mean, there was definitely times when I was probably a bit harsh on myself than I should have. But I think it's also good to be your own worst critic. I'd rather worry about my opinion of myself than someone else's. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, if you, um, I mean, obviously, you, you know, we, we established at the very start, you're a new dad, which is amazing, and you've done all this work on yourself and so on. But but if, if you were able to go back, and it's, it's, it's so easy to reminisce, isn't it? But if you were able to go back to you, age, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, with you now, would you have said just carry on, just just follow this path because ultimately it'll lead you to this excellent position that you're in now or would you have changed things? Um, you're the only person to, to, to ever ask that question and offer that up and you, you offered my answer. Um, I would only ever, I mean, hypothetically, I would change a million things um, but in... Yeah, in all actuality, I would, you know, in reality, I would, I would just say carry on because, you know, that's that's that was the best thing to do, and that was actually what what I did do, and that was the that was the best lesson for all of the anxiety and the absence and the fear and the knots in my stomach that I dealt with from, um, you know, the beginning of my life. I had an operation when I was six weeks old um, to fix to, to fix a defect in my digestive tract, and there was all of this, you know, is it. Uh, a physiological problem and back and forth to the doctors and then the hospital and you know it was it wasn't quite Munchausen's you know but it was like you know am I sick or aren't I I was um, diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome when I was like five or six years old and you know no one ever suggested to me and I didn't really have the the language or the tools or the, the knowledge and understanding to realize that a lot of the the pain that I had in my stomach wasn't pain really it was it was anxiety and you know that it's not that feeling isn't that dissimilar to to excitement uh, but I understand that in adult age um, and I just realized that I'm quite a sensitive person as are most people you know if they allow themselves to be and that most things that I feel go to my gut yes the, the gut and the brain the emotion in particular they're, they're very very connected aren't they but they're intrinsically linked by the longest nerve in the body, the, the vagus nerve. Um, and it used to be thought that it was a one-way street and it was just information from the brain to the gut, but it's actually a, a two-way street and 80 to 90% of the information is sent via the, the gut and the rest of your organs, actually, to your brain. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, this is something that you have become something of an expert on. You've got a gulp, there's the Let's, Let's Talk Bleep campaign, and, I, and I'm very, very keen to, to learn all about this and, and what it means, what it's going to become. Um, it would be wrong of me just from a from a broadcasting perspective to, to, to not go on the, the subjects that you've touched on, Stephen. So if it's yep. okay, we, we will discuss those. You know, it's the whole, and as you've said, these aren't landmark moments in your mind because you've lived it. But of course... If it's a if it's a Wikipedia summary, there are some standout moments that that you know people will say to me, "Well, why didn't you ask him about that?" So of course, <laughs> you know what I mean. Of course, I have to have to. Talk yeah, of course. If you're okay with this. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with everything. I'm an I'm an open book. I just segue a lot. <laughs> well, you have I, to I ra- you have to rein me in. That's 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 the hardest thing you'll have with this conversation. Have you ever been on a Segway? No, I, I for all the for as good as I was as a skater, I don't trust those things. <laughs> Why not? I, I don't. I don't think they look very cool either. No, they don't, do they? No, you want a tangent? Then we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk public mobility and uh, segue opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> that was what's no one ever asked you, Stephen. That's the conversation we need to have. What's uh... you've, you've just asked me something that no one has ever asked me. So there we go. Wow. All right. That, well, that one's ticked. We'll take that. We'll take that. Um, 
you know, the, the top lines, and it's it's horrific to describe them like that. But, you know, there's so much more, I believe, that we, we should be talking about in this in this time. So let's so let's go there. Age 24. You know, j- just talk me through what happened, your perspective of it with your father. Yeah, I woke up on a Wednesday morning the last time I'd seen him. I was 18. Um, and, uh, yeah, I woke up on a Wednesday morning to my nan. Uh, running into my room, I'd moved back. I'd moved back home briefly. Um, she just burst into my room. I barely even opened both my eyes, and she says, "Stephen, your dad's dead. He's hung himself." Don't get me wrong. There's no gentle way. I mean, I, I, I don't think I'd have really appreciated her trying to, you know, I don't know, wake me up, say, "Hey, Stephen, let's go get a coffee, and then maybe go to Selfridges or up the West End for the day." Not that, that was ever something we did, um, and then broke it to me. But um, it was a pretty, you know, I think your, you know, your first hour when you wake up, and probably your last hour before you go to bed, are the most vulnerable hours of the day, which is why I try and avoid uh, making any decisions or or my phone for that matter, and the TV during those times. So to be woken up with with that news was um, it was it was heartbreaking, man. Um, and I went through a whole spectrum of emotions very, very quickly. I punched the wall, I screamed, I called him selfish, swore a lot, cried my eyes out. Um, and he had done it the night before. And I had no idea. I had no idea that he was going through that because we hadn't seen each other. We'd spoken just over a year before, um, around Christmas time. The last conversation I had with him was on the day after Boxing Day. I'd gone to buy something in the sales probably a computer game. I was in Walton style. I just bought Burger King. I was with my then girlfriend at the time, Tia. I remember it vividly. Um, and he called on my mobile and I said, so what's happening? We were meant to meet up the day after. Bearing in mind, I said, I'd never put my neck on the line for him again. I'd never make myself vulnerable for him. I'd never give him the chance to hurt me again. But actually, I realized that it was hurting me a hell of a lot not having him in my life because he was such a kind, caring, and charming gentleman um he's just a rubbish father and he started he, he said you know uh he mentioned his you know, wife's name and her kids his stepchildren and how excited they were to see me and i was like you know it was, and it was the first time i ever stood up and, and said how i felt i'd always been too scared prior to that as a child because i was scared he would disappear for a year and a half again and i'd end up sitting in our front room window you know in our living room looking at the bus stop directly outside waiting for him to get off a bus every day which he never did um, and I just said to him, this isn't about me having to play happy, you know, this isn't about me playing happy families. This is about you and I sitting down and talking about everything and trying to develop some sort of a, or even seeing if we can develop a relationship as adults. Yes. And we started to stutter and, you know, and I just said, I probably kissed my teeth and said, you know what, if I ever see you again, I'm going to knock you out. Um, and that was the last conversation we ever had. Yeah, and then, a, and then a year later, like you say, he's 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 hanged himself. Um, yeah, man. And yeah, and then I and then I ended up IDing his his body. No one would walk in his family. With you know, I understand. Um, it wasn't easy, but um, you know, it wasn't easy to have to do that and be the first person to walk in and see him like that. Either having not seen him for so long, and then to see him lying there like that. Um, it's a very harsh reality, but it is a reality, and I think it's important that people, you know, they understand what's on the other side of that because it's a hell of a lot of pain. But I don't think, and I haven't thought for a long time that he's he's selfish for the decision he made. The amount of you have to understand, right? My dad was a very very passive man. If he had a problem at all, he was a, he was weak. 
Um, and there's a lot that contributed to that. I found out a lot of that by way of a documentary I made for the BBC in 2013, I think. Um, Suicide and Me. So, yeah. yeah, so for him to make such a violent decision to end his own life when he wasn't a violent man was very, very difficult for me to, to understand. And for ages I wanted to understand how he made that decision, but uh, and I say this often, the only way I would ever understand that is if I found myself in the same situation that he was in and I never want to be in that situation. I will never be in that situation. I can say that quite matter of fact. Um, so I had to let that one go. Yes, yes. I mean, Stephen, obviously this is a, a subject that has been discussed by you and, and you know, the, the public are aware of. You know, there was your autobiography, there was, the, as you know, the BBC Three show that you touched on and I've, I've heard you talk about this in, in, in other interviews and, and it must be incredibly difficult mining from it time and again. So, so I asked this uh, on on that it isn't it isn't. I think this is something that people people don't realise. You know, we, we we suppress things all too often, and if you push something down, it often just comes up and hits you from the side. Whereas, you know, I'm not. It will always be sad what my dad did. You know, especially now I have a son. You know, I would love for him to be able to to have had a grandfather. I would like to have had a father. Um, but the fact that I am very, you know, these things have been very present in my mind for a long, long time. And I've had many of these conversations and, and it still catches me off guard sometimes and, and, and makes me teary. Um, but for the most part, and it's not that I'm like, I've become some sociopath and completely disengaged with my emotions or feelings, but it's more present. So it's easier to discuss without, you know, because I don't hide from it. No, I completely understand that because of course, you know, the reality is that we all live in our current moments. We all live in what we're doing right here, right now. And I'm going to, I don't really know how to phrase this, Stephen, so bear with me. I'm not trying to be, um, yeah. you know, hearing you talk about this, that being stabbed in the neck and so on, you know, these are sort of outlying moments to the public in your life. But the way you talk about them now, it's a little bit like, and again, this is just an observation and it's not a judgment on any level, but it's a bit like, you know, we all go to dinner parties or whatever and we're meeting new people and so on. And it's only the people that are really close to us, you know, like my wife, for example, she's heard me t tell a certain story exactly the same way a hundred times over, you know, oh, he, and she'll know in her head, oh yeah, he's going to do that one now. Whereas the people that are with me now, it's, it's, I'm, I'm telling it because they've never heard it and they're, they're interested in but how I'm connecting to that story, it's almost just I'm going through the history of this story now rather than the impact of the event, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you know what yeah, I mean? And so, and so, yeah, 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 it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, well, and I guess that goes back to what I was saying, right, is that it's, it's less the, 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 the single moment that, that the, the trauma happens, it's more the cumulative effect of things that happen over time because there were things I went through, you know, for a long time before that and then there was things I went through for a long time after that which actually, you know, you know the amalgamation of which were what caused the problem. Yes. Yes, and... and, and Something starts the fire, but, you know, it's the bitch when it burns, it hurts. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, and I'm assuming it's, it's not something that you try to allow to occupy your every day on a, on a frequent basis. It can't. I've got too many other things occupying my mind. You know, I can, I listen, I, it's, a, it's a birthright of mine, right? I'm British. I complain a lot. Um, <laughs> but, I, I, but I used to. I complain less now. And I, I guess that's because I've, I've kind of accepted I'm, I'm not that happy unless I am overwhelmingly busy. It's, I like to keep my mind occupied. And I think that's, 
you know, I used to, it, it can be a gift and a curse and overactive mind and, and is it overactive or is it just well engaged? You know, but I, you know, I did suffer from OCD. I have overanalyzed every part of, of my life probably 16 times over. Um, I've got a lot better at not doing that and focusing on matters at hand and applying that sort of, you know, that energy into the things that I enjoy doing, the people that I enjoy spending time with. How do you quieten the mind now and the, and the overthinking? Um, I do things that, um, that relax me. I find I, I have to do, and I, you know, it's been a bit more difficult of, of late. It's like it has been for everyone over the last year. You know, everyone has suffered varying degrees of, of what's been going on. Um, but generally, you know, it would be, I, I, I find I need to do things that allow me to think and I need to do things that allow me not to think about anything apart from the, whatever's in front of me. So that might be a tire that I'm flipping or, or you know, or um, a, a cycle that I'm on or, you know, it, on the flip side of that, what allows me to think, you know, walking my dogs, driving my car, playing music, um, sitting in a room on my own. Um, which I don't get that much of a chance to do. Uh, and something I haven't missed as much as, as some people, I think, the last year has been the social obligations, of which there used to be many, um, which didn't allow me as much time. And I found that that was when things got difficult and started to feel unmanageable. And that was when I would probably make decisions which led to me doing things which made things easier in the interim, but longer in the, you know, long, sorry, harder in the long term. You know, and I, I realized, I was like, why am I? So I was like, oh, God, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to have to have a drink. Um, and you can imagine how many events there are with, with you know, c- that come with all the various things I did that, you know, involve media, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, and what I did as an artist. Um, and I was like, wait a minute, why am I going to places where I feel like I have to have a drink just to be? And it wasn't because I was socially anxious and I couldn't be anywhere without having a drink. It's just because I went to a lot of places where I didn't really want to be. Um, and that was because I felt obliged to, and then I realized that I wasn't, and that the world wouldn't stop, and that I'd still sell records, and I could still engage with my fans if I didn't go to to all of these things that I was encouraged to do to, to, you know, to keep up appearances. Yeah, see and be seen. Which, which people are now desperate to do for a career. I'm, I, I'm, yeah, I find that mental. Yes. Yes, it's but but then that's because you've done it. You know, you you you're allowed to find it mental because you know what the reality is. You know, whereas we sort of humble observers simply see the stage and and the sales and and the cars and all that stuff. You know, and, and it's it seems good. yeah, yeah. I suppose I just is, but then things are very different now, and there's there's very different opportunities. You know, and I, I, I there was no such thing as an influencer. When I was when I was growing up, it was you know you had to have a craft that you were good at. I never wanted to be famous. I wanted to to, to become a successful musician, um, and then I fell into a few other things, presenting and, and documentaries and whatnot. And I was like, okay, well I want to do that as good as I've done you know as good as I've done everything else. Um, I find I do find the other side of it a bit weird, you know, just just wanting that. And, and we see what it does like psychologically to people, people that don't, you know. I think it's probably quite difficult for people when they're, they they go from zero to a hundred, you know, one minute they're working in the bank, the next minute they've, they've got two million followers on Instagram, they get stopped everywhere they go. People are not necessarily as kind um, and it has an, a huge impact on them and we've seen people take their own lives because there's been no support in place for them. So I have a very, uh, I have a very weird relationship with, with, with the state of affairs as they are currently. 
Yes, uh, I think fame and celebrity are very unusual words these days and they don't necessarily mean what they used to, what they were when we were growing up. And it's... Um, mm-hmm. Well, that makes me sound old now, doesn't it? It's really showing my age. In my day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm older, so, you know, easy. <laughs> not, yeah, but I'm not far off. Not far off, yeah. You'll catch up at some point. Uh, you know, I, I obviously, I, I'm, I'm actually very keen to talk to you a lot about Agalp. I want to know all about it from a personal perspective as well as, as as well as what's going on with you and the plans for it and, and, and the Let's Talk Bleep campaign properly. I, I do feel it would be completely remiss if we don't talk about the stabbing, the, the you know, the, the, the Mercedes incidents and so on. We don't have to dwell on them, but, but you know, mm. are, you, are you cool talking about it? You know, you, I haven't met many yeah. people that have been stabbed in the neck and crushed between two cars and fractured their neck during a seizure and so on. Can you, can you... Oh, I forgot about that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's the most recent. How could you forget yeah. about that one? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what defines it? How does, how do they stand out to you? Um, a lot of people got stabbed when I was growing up. Um, it, people probably try and join dots and think that I got stabbed because of what I was involved in. That, that perhaps there was perhaps there was was some deservingness of you know you know in me deserving it happening, and there wasn't. It um, was just a random event in a nightclub. I bumped into someone. Well, I didn't actually. I moved past them with. Uh, I said, "Excuse me." The first time there was two people in conversation. It was a packed club. It was loud. Um, he didn't hear me. I said, excuse me, the second time. And I'm an extremely passive person as well, you know, much um, like my father. And moved past him with an open hand on his back, as you do to make space without barging into someone or bumping into someone. Um, long and short of it, his friend accused me of barging in, started to get really rude, and, and all I did was stand up for myself. And I thought I was right to do that. In hindsight, I could have just gone, you know what, sorry, mate. And it would have been done. Um, I'm a much calmer person now than I was. I was a little bit younger and a little bit more reactive. Um, and I stood up for myself. And all of a sudden, he didn't want the trouble that he had started. And I thought it was over and done with. And then five minutes later, he walked up behind me and put a broken bottle in my neck. Yeah. And, and it could have killed you very, very easily, couldn't it? it was, um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 15 minutes away on that in Amherst Road, both. Bearing in mind that they're both in Hackney, a 16-year-old got stabbed in his neck and he died. So on the same night, um, mine went right past my carotids. When I got to hospital, you know, they were, it's kind of, I felt kind of, you know, when I got to hospital, bearing in mind I've never been a gang member, I've never liked violence. Um, and I was treated as though I was as, as, you know, as in the wrong as the person who had stabbed me. I got arrested as well. Um so I wasn't treated that kindly when I got to hospital. When I understand they're stressed, they see a lot of shootings and stabbings in that hospital because of, you know, how, you know, the surrounding areas are um, and how people live and what they suffer. So I guess, you know, they just assume that, you know, again, probably did, done something to deserve it. Um, but in this instance, nope. It was, it was a random event and uh, it went right past my carotid. I went down for surgery. And they thought I'd be down for 45 minutes. They, they thought it was superficial, which seems crazy to me, but it had gone right through my salivary glands. It had actually stopped at my bone. The only reason it didn't go right through my throat was because it, it hit my jawbone. Um, and it was millimeters away from my carotid artery, which, and they also made a nerve twitch during surgery. So when I come round and I was still a bit out of it, they were like, you shrug your shoulders. And I started laughing, like, what are you on about? And they're like, no, no, no. You might have lost the use of your arms and you shrug your shoulders. So yeah, I was I was I was again very lucky. Um, yeah, so that's that. 
Yeah, and it, it's left you with a, a sizable scar on your neck, just just underneath the tattoo you'd had just a few weeks earlier, saying "lucky" madly. Yeah, and how lucky was that? It's funny. People always go, "You were unlucky," and it's like, well, no, because there's a lot of people who find themselves in, in in those situations. You don't you don't come out the other side of them, especially not when they get poked in the neck. If you're gonna get if you're gonna get stabbed, there's there's definitely better places for it to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Has it given you a fear of death? Um, no, I think when I got I um. I got you. You referenced me getting um, hit into the back of my own lovely Mercedes. It was an SLS I had back then. Um, I finally got my own Batmobile. Um, I loved Batman as a kid. I still quite enjoy it now. Not not the films in between the first, the second, and the last three. They were all awful. Um, but uh, yeah, I, someone uh, had their car in eco. Didn't realise that they'd, you know, the car was in eco. The engine had stopped. And so I was walking in between the two cars. It was quite a large distance between them as well um, to the pavement. And the guy took his foot off of the brake, felt the engine start. He presumed the car was going to move forwards, which it wouldn't have. Eco is, you know, it's quite a good invention. It's not stupid. Um, but the driver was, and he panicked, and he went to slam his foot on the brake, and instead he slammed his foot on the accelerator, and he hit me in the back. And luckily, I got my hands on the bonnet, and this probably comes from my skating days and being really good at falling over. Um, I, my reactions got my body up and out of the way, all but my left leg, as he smashed me into the back of my car as fast as yeah he could have gone between uh, about twenty foot or something. It was a big V8 by turbo. He had though it wasn't a small car, you know. Um, and that affected me mentally way, way, way more than um, than the stabbing because I don't know. I just you know I didn't know anyone who'd been hit by a car, and it seemed totally free. I, I'd never, you know, I just it, it, I know it sounds weird, but you know, stabbings were somewhat normalised um, because of of how frequent they were, you know, how frequent they occurred where I grew up. Um, whereas that. That was like, whoa, that just came out of, and, and I mean, I got stabbed out of nowhere, but again, this just seemed, you know, my life was was in a pretty blimming good place. You know, I was off the back of doing two albums in two years, hadn't stopped touring, was actually due, I was off the back of a show the night before, had a show that night, which obviously I had to cancel. But believe it or not, I still got abuse on Twitter. Oh, I get it. People I do, wanted to I do see believe that because, yeah, because Twitter, yeah. Um, but yeah, people still wanted to see the show. Um, but yeah, that 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 kind of come out of nowhere, and so that that took a little while to to recover from, to be honest. And I don't think it was helped by the pain medication that I was given, um, which I ended up just stopping taking because I felt like I was yeah didn't feel very present, you know, taking tramadol and um, oromorph and and whatever else I was on. I also threw my crutches away and just started to lose my legs. I was suffering so much atrophy. I wasn't, you know, I, and I needed to get back on my legs as quickly as possible. So I was a bit of a moany bugger. You can imagine pain doesn't, <laughs> pain doesn't make you the happiest, does it? But um, No, no. And I imagine you weren't the best fun to be around either in terms of living with you. Uh, probably, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, my, my mates would probably say that was the case throughout most of the time they lived with me, but yeah. <laughs> And then obviously you say you'd even forgotten about it. 2019, you, you, you had a seizure and you fractured your neck. I mean, that's, that's not small. No, um, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever had the flu before, if that is what the flu was. I, um, but to be fair, I had quite a mental schedule. Uh, I had been to Australia for three and a half weeks. 
um, come back, worked every day, excuse me, from getting off the plane uh, until I flew to New York on the Saturday. This was the first time I'd ever sort of traveled solo as well. I was like, sorry, I'm going to start going away without work because I've never done that before. You know, I'd always felt a bit of working class guilt. I'd always attached holidays to, to work um, and always felt a bit wrong taking them. I was like, no, I'm going to go and see a bit of the world and enjoy myself. And so I went to, yeah, so worked for every day for a week once I got back from Australia and it got harder progressively because every time I wanted to sleep, I couldn't. And then every time I could sleep, I couldn't because of jet lag. And then went to New York. I got sick when I was in New York. I had a stomach bug, um, tried to enjoy myself the best I could while I was out there, got back and similarly worked every day from the, I don't know if it was a Monday or Tuesday, I flew back um, to the Friday when I eventually just, I did my last job and uh, came home and was in bed until the Tuesday. I missed rehearsals for my tour, which I was due to start on the Tuesday. And rather than do the smart thing and um, and just say, look, I can't do the first couple of shows, I tried to, to, to get up on the Tuesday morning and put some sort of suitcase together for the tour. And the last thing I remember doing was sending a friend a photo of my room before I'd packed the case and then a photo of the case once I packed it because it looked like the Tasmanian devil had been through my room prior. <laughs> um, and um, then sent, yeah, and then that was the last thing I remember. And then the next thing was my housemates surrounding me and me waking up in an absolute panic, not knowing what had gone on. And yeah, I'd had a seizure. Gosh. Um, and that was when I got to the hospital, I, they, they count all of the seizures as one seizure. Uh, I forget the type of seizure it was now. Um, but if they happen in a cluster, they're, they're one seizure. Um, and because I, I, I have hemophilia B, it's way worse on paper than it is in practice. Um, you know, I had an operation at six weeks. They didn't find that out until I was 19. So if it was of any, you know, if it was bad, I would have died then. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah. So I, they were worried because I had this huge, you know, I'd smash my face when um, when I'd when I'd fallen. I'm quite a lump. I'm six foot three, so I had quite a long way to go. Um, so yeah, they were worried about a brain bleed potentially. Gosh, okay. Um, yeah, so they rushed me through, and you know, after they came out and they were like, "Right, we've got some good news for you. There's there's no bleed." I was like, "Yes," and then it was like. But there's some bad news. I was like, oh, God. And they were like, yeah, you fractured your C7. And a fracture is no different to a break. And a C7 is really, really high. So had that been any more severe, that would have had a completely different outcome as well. So actually, you've you've had several, well, three incredibly near misses. That must be something that's, I don't know how much you think about that, but that's that's quite a remarkable thing to consider. By law of averages, uh, my, and this comes from my therapist. You know, he's like, you know, you would, you would, you would think most of the, the larger traumatic events that are going to happen in your life have already happened. Which at a point, I probably would have been scared to say out loud or repeat. But um, you know, you kind of just have to crack on and hope that that's the case. I'll tell you what, though, I'm resilient, and that's something that goes, you know, for all the mental health advocacy that I've been a part of. You know, I started the conversation in 2013. There wasn't one being had publicly, not least of all by um, a rapper. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it is. I think you know, the, the the one thing that goes missing in that conversation when people are being encouraged to be more open, more honest, and more more you know um, aware of their sensitivities uh, is is resilience, and resilience is important, and it's difficult to understand how resilient you are unless you you 
you suffer. Um, I think the only way to, and this is something I worked out for myself, the only way to gather, I think, the only way I think you can ever gather resilience mentally without suffering and surviving is by, by using therapy when you're not at a point of crisis. But we don't have a very proactive nature in this country when it comes to, you know, health overall. Well, the truth is, though, isn't it? You, you can't fake mental toughness. Uh, and you can't fake experience, you know, and, and, and those two things lead you to the person you are, I think. Yeah. 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 I mean, every, every, every little thing, good and bad plays into, plays into who you are, doesn't it? it does. Um, and you know, sometimes we all have to wear a mask. It's just like, you know, there are days when I don't want to do anything and I have to, and I still have to, especially in the job that I do, you know, I don't just get to, to kind of put my head down and, and get on with it. I have to, I have to show up. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that presents its own problems, but it is what it is. It's, you know, again, it's, you have to understand that they're your choices and, you know, you do always have the option of saying, no, you might not like what's on the other side of no, but you, you do have a choice. Yeah. Without any shadow of a doubt. Tell me about the Stephen of today. Because, of course, you know, you're a new dad, which is incredible. And you're going through all that glory and exhaustion and, and fascination and intrigue. You've also started this this new enterprise, a gulp, which mm-hmm. sounds like it's going to be doing as much good as you've been doing for people's mental health and start, starting the conversation. But it's also a practical solution to issues that, that a lot of people face. So, so talk me through it. Yeah, man. Um, well, I'm still getting to know the Stephen of today because it will probably be a little bit different tomorrow. Um, and I hope that continues throughout the rest of my life. To be honest, if if you're not if you're not changing, that probably indicates you're not learning. Um, and there's you know where's the point if you're not? And I'm still quite inquisitive and curious. And so, in 2017, another dreadful situation. I had an operation to repair a hiatus hernia and some other bits that relate to the operation I had when I was six weeks old. Um, and the operation went well, but I suffered severe complications because my body didn't enjoy it. Um, had ileus, distension, pneumonia, collapsed lung, and a CRP, if anyone knows what that is, it's an inflammation marker of 672, which basically meant, again, I probably should have copped it. Um, and after two weeks of them throwing everything at me they could to fix me, not knowing what the problem was, um, and I don't think any of it actually helped. I mean, like 100 milligrams of prednisolone, which is a steroid, um, as much as they could give me of the four strongest antibiotics that exist, <laughs> which obviously done my gut no good. Um, I, I started to get better and the inflammation started to reduce. They drained over four liters of inflammation through me, um, where they'd cut me open. Um, and everything went back to normal apart from my stomach, which was almost entirely paralyzed, which meant that, which meant that food wouldn't pass through, which was the same problem I had when I was born. I had pyloric stenosis, which meant that food wouldn't pass through my stomach. So, you know, all these years later, um, this was 2017, I'm, I'm back to square one with the same problem that I had. And, the, you know, the options were surgery, which was a gastric bypass, which if I suffered the same complications as I just had, which I was more likely to, I wouldn't have made it through the surgery or, or afterwards. Um, so I said no to that, obviously. Um, and so the only alternative was to try and find ways to heal myself holistically. And it's kind of weird that more traditional methods of medicine are called holistic because actually, you know, traditional medicine, we think, is waiting until you're sick 
uh, going to a doctor and getting a prescription. But actually, you know, the most traditional pillars of medicine are sleep, movement, and food. Um, a lot of us, like me in that situation, um, <clears throat> suffer from malabsorption. So even if you eat the most varied diet, uh, you, you don't get enough of what you need. So I started to, because I couldn't, um, I wasn't able to, you know, solid food was putrefying in my stomach because anything you eat has to be turned into a liquid before it can pass through to your small intestine where the larger part of your, well, almost all nutrients are absorbed. Um, it's only really fibers that pass through to feed your gut bacteria. Um, so I started to look into liquid nutrition and I found out about probiotics, prebiotics, fermented foods as I, I started to be able to eat more. Um, and it, I bumped into uh, a man called Kevin Godlington, who's now one of my best friends and business partners. He, um, he helped start The Book of Man, which is a website which I, I, I write for. Um, and we got to talking and it was one of those drunken conversations that, you know, things don't normally materialize after drunken conversations. They're a bit like, you know, friends you meet on holiday. Um, but um, we, we were just, we just, we were speaking about our encounters with, you know, gut health and mental health. And I realized that the better I took care of my gut and as I started to get better, you know, the better my mental health was. And there would have obviously been a positive knock on effect because my quality of life was improving. So even after my stomach was entirely healed, I found that if I stopped taking care of my gut, my mood, you know, my mood was worse. It was more inconsistent. My sleep was worse. And I started to join the dots between the two. And I started to do a lot of research between the two, bearing in mind I'm not a real professor. Um, and I discussed, <laughs> discussed all of this with, with Kevin. And, and he felt quite similarly, having a, a quite traumatic childhood himself and having suffered a lot of similar issues, having seen a lot of PTSD because he was ex-SAS or is ex-SAS. <laughs> Um, and we were like, look, uh, the, the one thing about what I found about supplementing and nutrition is that it, it was a, you know, my morning routine was laborious. It took me about an hour to get through it all and it didn't travel. So, and as soon as I, you know, I took a break from it, things went back to, you know, things weren't as good almost immediately. You know, I started to notice ill effect of not following the same routine. So we were like, okay, between us, we have to be able to find a way that, this can be made easier. So we, you know, we, we began with the gut and the brain because we were so interested in the link between gut health and mental health. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, you know, is it psychological trauma that causes gut issues or is it gut issues that causes psychological problems? I think in, in different instances, it can be either. Um, and there's more and more and more research being done around this now. And there's almost a new paper written every day. In fact, that probably is um, and we were like there must be a way to condense all of these brilliant things that we found that work and that help um, into one thing and also we found out about the poor efficacy of, of traditional pill form vitamins which not only give your stomach a job which if you've got an irritated stomach is going to make things worse immediately because you have to you know you're going to create stomach acid in order to break the pills down but the stomach acid that breaks the pills down it kills up to 95% of what's in the vitamin so you're getting very little of what you're paying for. Um, so we found, I mean, we got, we knocked on a lot of doors and we got told to sort off because it was overcomplicated. Um, and where's the point in doing that? That's crazy. Uh, and then we found uh, a company which eventually said they would trial it. Um, and it, they used uh, a, a method of delivery, which is targeted of 
you know, that targeted treatments are 0.01% of all medication. And I'm not saying there's no place for medicine because there wouldn't be such thing as liposomal technology if it wasn't for medicine. That was why it was developed. Um, but basically, it means that we're made of lipids for people that don't know. Sorry if this is a bit like a science lesson. But, That's good to have um, like say, you're not a professor and yet you, you've got the knowledge. Yeah, so, yeah let's hear it. Liposomes are a little bit like, in layman's terms, they're like waterproof onesies that protect whatever is inside them from your stomach acid, which is otherwise corrosive. So they get to where they need to go. But because they mimic human cells, they also, again, they, they further get to where they need to go and are far more effective. So we started a goal, um, and it began with a formula for gut and a formula for brain. Um, and I mean, you know, people can go into Trustpilot and read the testimonials themselves. You know, the clinical trials went really, really well. And it was kind of crazy because you think, wow, this was a pipe dream, but this is actually helping people. Um, and it's still, you know, I'm astounded to this day and, and really humbled by the, you know, just the messages that I get from, from the, the positive effects that this is having on people's lives. We've now got formulas for immunity, for recovery, for sleep, which is something that I've, I've suffered with. Um, to varying degrees throughout my life um, and it's amazing to you know I wouldn't want to go through any of what I've been through again but to be able to take some of what I've suffered and put that into something that can help people much I guess in the same way that I was able to take my encounters either via my father or my own issues and my own mental health and put, you know take that and help others it's kind of nice to be able to to take a lifetime of suffering with my gut and put that into something that's able to help others and I went through a lot of trial and error to find what 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 worked for me and I, I'm not by any means saying this will work for everyone or fix everything I don't think there is one size fits all but there are specific things which most of us are deficient in knowingly or not um and you know they can help and that we should should all endeavor to take whether it's via traditional more traditional methods food or you know supplements in this instance by by way of a gulp and so this is you know in, in the most basic of terms because you know you, you've described it brilliantly and then i need to dumb things down for myself so this is in essence an individually tailored supplement that you would take what a breakfast or whatever that'll, that'll actually address the issue that you're experiencing be it gut or sleep issues or, or, or whatever and, and, it, and it makes a tangible difference it makes a tangible dif difference and i think like you know when we have tests when we go to, to the doctors you know it's to test whether you're deficient or sufficient it, it, and it's like you you know a blood test will determine whether you're ill or not ill um, and you can be almost ill, but you'll be deemed not ill, you know, whereas you can be just sufficient in something which doesn't necessarily, you know, the difference between me having a, a what's considered sufficient level, level of B12 and an optimal level is the, the ability to get out of bed. It changes my life exponentially um, because I don't retain B12 well because I suffer with malabsorption. And a lot of people, especially as they get older, you know, they suffer with deficiencies they're not aware of. And it's not an overnight journey with gut, you know, with something like our brain formula, you, you know, you will take that and you will feel a difference immediately, you know, or after about four and a half minutes, you know, you will feel the pickup and it's not stimulant as well. You know, there's as many relaxants as there are things in there to support your, you know, the function of your brain. It's not just a caffeine fuel and sugar fueled stimulant like most things out there it actually is you know it's forgive the pun but food for thought you know we focus on so like our recovery sachet which was you know born 
of the idea of, you know, not hangover remedy because that's, you know, hangover is weirdly a medical term. You can't call something that. But I wanted to, to create something that, again, wasn't sugar and a, a caffeine. You know, I didn't want to create something to help people plaster over the cracks, but to replenish everything that we deplete when we do have one too many. But what we created in doing that was something that served a far larger purpose than just, you know, helping someone after a hangover because it helps you replenish what you deplete, whatever distress you put your body under. And so whether it's a workout, whether it's a double shift on the NHS, um, How about you know, just, about just being a dad, would that be all right? Yeah, well, that too, you know, <laughs> and it's important because it's, you know, I don't want to, and for me it's, you know, I don't, I don't want to get ill. I don't want to get ill to have to get better. I want to stay well. And I think more and more people, especially after the last year, are starting to look into ways in which they can keep themselves healthier. Um, and I'm trying to make a difference, you know, and, and the biggest piece of this for me, you know, as a business, and that's been a whole education in itself, you know, we're gonna, like the idea of running at a loss for a year was very scary to me. It's like, you are, how? <laughs> sorry, yeah, yeah, um, sure. you know, and it's speculative, but again, it's a passion project and it's something that I care so much about. And I think there's a, there's a bigger, you know, there's a, there's a bigger, there's a bigger, there's a bigger end goal here and that's you know there's there's a huge the, the educational piece is almost more important to me because i think there's a lack of information especially clear and concise information out there as far as nutrition um you know and uh, a lot of kids suffer uh with malnutrition and the, the picture that we think of when we think of malnutrition is probably not a kid on his way to school uh, in the london borough but that is you know that that's that sadly is yeah. is sometimes um and i think if we can make a difference in that i'll be i'll be very 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 happy and they're, they're simple they're convenient you know they don't need refrigerating they're in single serve sachets which you can have when you wake up or when you're on your way to work or when you get home however you however you so please the whole the whole point of it was to make it comprehensive and convenient and also not you know not to be so i don't know a lot of people sell snake oil um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that that was never that was never the aim, you know. This and uh, it's it's you know what the most the best thing about it is is that there's so many uh, you know there's so many things in place that stop us from making outlandish claims. Um, it, that it's good, you know. We uh, we don't have to make the claims. You can literally look on Trustpilot and see the results that people have have seen from taking from taking these lovely little sachets themselves. I'm going to and give I it think, a try. Genuinely, just talking to you now, hearing about it, I've, I've read a little bit about it myself. I'm, I'm up for this. This sounds great. I'm going to give it a try. It took me two and a half years having a few problems at my record label and not being able to release music at the, the, you know, as consistently as I would have liked actually gave me time to focus on, on this and do this properly. Um, and yeah, it's kind of amazing to, to give birth to something and have ownership over it. I've always give or take in the product um, uh, it's nice to have some ownership over the business, although that comes with its own anxieties. <laughs> yeah, of course yeah. it does. That's uh, startup, startup glory, isn't it? Um, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, huge luck with this. I, I, I like I say, I'm going to try it myself, and 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 I'll let you know how I get on because <laughs> it sounds it sounds great. This isn't an end to the music, though, is it? That's that's not stopped. No, no so on the 27th of this month, um, sorry, 25th of this month, I, I finally signed. My new record deal, I get set free from from where I was unable to release music, and and that all starts again, which will almost coincide with us being allowed back out, which I can't wait for. Perfect.
Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. What, thank you. It was worth the wait, man. Cheers, man. I'm glad we got to do it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you so Take much. Take care. You too. Lots of love. Bye. Bye bye. The Andy J Podcast. So there you go, Stephen Manderson, Professor Green himself. What a guy. What a chat. I want to flag up, of course, if, if there's anything that you've heard today that has affected you, please visit the Samaritans. I believe it's samaritans.org. And I think from memory, their phone number is 116123. That's 116123. I will check that. So it is just samaritans.org. That will get you straight through. And the number, I believe I did say it correctly, it's 116123. You can call them from a mobile phone or a landline or whatever for free. 116123. Anyway, thank you so much for your company. I hope you are a regular listener. I hope you subscribe to the show. I'm looking forward to bringing you next week's conversation already. It's a big hitter. Oh, that was a terrible pun. It's Tony Bellew, uh, boxing champ, who has just brought out his book. It's probably the best titled book ever. I love it. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. We're talking about him and his incredible life next week. Tell your friends, subscribe, like, share. And if you fancy giving us a nice review, writing a few lovely words, well, that would be really kind. Thank you for your company. We'll speak next week. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.